Today is Palm Sunday, as we mentioned, and our scripture reading today comes from the Gospels of Matthew and John. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And then from John 5, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. This is the word of the Lord. Man, I feel like we already did church. <laughs> uh, but I have all these notes here, so I think I'm going to preach anyway. Um, welcome. My name is Justin Henry. Uh, I'm a pastoral fellow here at Christ City Church, which means that I spend a lot of time with uh, Justin Fung and with Matthew Watson and with uh, Andrea and Nikki and Melissa and um, just learning a lot by watching and imitating uh, and seeing their witness in the world. Uh, I'm also learning a lot from you all. Uh, as you all shape my life and uh, are a part of my life. In particular, my beautiful small group who insisted upon a shout out. Uh, yeah. um, happy Palm Sunday. Uh, I love Palm Sunday. I've loved it since I was a kid. Um, the best Palm Sunday I can remember was actually the year that my family lived in Hawaii. Uh, because in Hawaii, when you celebrate Palm Sunday, you don't just get like one pointy thing, you get like the whole frond. Uh, and in some way, way better. Um, but I don't want to skip ahead. Uh, oh, it, it, we also have Easter next week, and I wanted to remind you, 9.30 and 11, not 10.30, uh, really important. If you show up now, uh, you'll be late or early. Um, yeah, so let's t spend some time on Palm Sunday before we get to Easter, though. Um, this is the day when we join with John the Baptist, uh, John the Forerunner, as Marissa called him, and we say, prepare ye the way of the Lord. This is us acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, and we're welcoming him into our city to affect it. And we're shouting Hosanna, which means save us. Uh, in John 12, it's a slightly different version than Matthew. It says, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. We often contrast the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem to what we might expect from a conquering king. And we're right to do so. Jesus enters on a donkey, not a stallion. Um, he's celebrated and welcomed. He comes in peace, not in violence. But it's also important to remember that he uh, does all of this in full accordance with scripture. 
He's associating himself with the symbolism of the Jewish Messiah as seen by the prophets, as seen by Isaiah. It confirms what the prophets said about him. And it shows us the prophets knew what they were talking about. And it has Jerusalem going nuts. <laughs> Why are they welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as king? What do they believe about him? Matthew 21 tells us, The city asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So the crowds were welcoming Jesus with all, with all the symbolism of Messiah, of a saving king. And this, this upset the Jewish leaders. It threatened the balance of power and the order of things. Um, they're responding to the imagery that Jesus is using, but they're still missing something. They call him the prophet. They're still missing out on a piece of Jesus' message. They see the signs. They call him king. But four days from now, Jesus will be arrested by the authorities. He'll be disavowed by everyone, both those close to him and those far from him. Back in John 12, after the triumphal entry, we see that even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was also to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. If you read this story in order, Palm Sunday is really exciting. It feels like everything is leading up to a huge climax and something big is about to happen, something huge is about to change. But when you know what's coming next, what's coming on Thursday and on Friday, a betrayal and a death, when you know that and you're reading through the gospel, Palm Sunday is eerie. It feels doomed and ominous. You've caught all the foreshadowing and you want to reach in and warn the disciples because you know that they're missing something crucial to the whole story. They weren't quite paying attention. Or maybe they were, but they never questioned the assumptions that they were making about the signs Jesus was using and the stories he was telling. Do you ever wish that you could warn yourself? <laughs> uh, ever look back and say, man, I wish I knew what was going to happen next. Or maybe you look back and say, boy, I'm... I'm glad I didn't know what was going to happen next. Have you ever said to yourself, well, I just assumed you meant this, and didn't realize what you were actually saying? Today's passage, John 5, consists of Jesus trying to get through to his disciples, to the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, and to us, who it is that he is and what he is here to accomplish our brains are wired to interpret the world according to how we already understand it. We don't want to alter our understanding. We take in new information and fit it in with how we think things are. But Jesus is trying to get past those ruts and show us an entirely new way of thinking about God's intention for the world. So I want to pick up the story in John 5 right after where uh, Justin left off last week. Um, Jesus had just healed this man who had been sick for 38 years. And he did it on the Sabbath. And he told this man to pick up his mat and walk. He told him to break Sabbath law. What was Jesus' intent here? Did Jesus know it was the Sabbath? Yes. Uh, <laughs> he knew he was the Sabbath, so he, he intentionally tells this man to break Sabbath law. Did Jesus figure that this man would get into trouble? 
probably. Uh, <laughs> he knew that the Jewish religious elite would not have any qualms about harassing this man if they saw him carrying his mat. So maybe Jesus thinks that they won't run into him, um, but the man goes straight to the temple where they are, uh, and Jesus goes there too, and they're all kind of running around, like that scene in Scooby-Doo when everyone's kind of like going in and out of the doors, and they're running into each other and then losing each other again. Uh, and it all leads up to this moment when the man with the mat is there, Jesus is there, the Jewish leaders are there, and there's this confrontation. They persecute Jesus, and Jesus wants to respond to their persecution, respond to their accusation. The Jewish leaders are offended because Jesus is healing on the Sabbath and telling other people to work on the Sabbath and generally undermining their authority. Um, remember that, as Justin said last week, the Sabbath is holy, and it's not a suggestion. It's a command that the Sabbath is God's day. We rest on the Sabbath because God rested on the Sabbath in imitation of God, and we give that day to God. Despite this, it was also commonly believed um, that God was still at work on the Sabbath. That uh, babies were born on the Sabbath, crops grew on the Sabbath, the sun set and rose on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is set aside for God as a day of rest in imitation of God uh, and the rest that he took in the beginning, but it's also a day on which only God can continue working. And only working on the kinds of things that only God can work on, like the sun setting and rising. Okay, so Jesus wants to address the, this accusation they're making against him, this persecution that he's facing from them. Why? Why does Jesus care? It's because Jesus loves them. He loves even those who are about to kill him. He doesn't just say to love one's enemies, Jesus cares about his enemies, just as he cares about us. And just as he wants to open our eyes to who he is, just as he wanted to open Nicodemus's eyes to who he is, just like he wanted to open the eyes of the woman at the well to who he is, he wants to open the eyes of these Jewish leaders. He wants to short-circuit their misconceptions and get through to them. So what does he say? They say, like, you're working on the Sabbath. You're telling other people to work on the Sabbath. Jesus responds, my father is still working, and I am working too. Uh, this really gets them riled up. <laughs> the Jewish leaders are saying, how dare you take up the authority of God? And Jesus says, my father is still working, and I'm working too. My father. This doesn't sound so strange to us. We use that language. But here, Jesus is getting two strikes counted against him very immediately. Because while Jewish leaders may have referred to God as our father, they never would have said my father. That, that assumes this very intimate relationship that they don't think anybody should claim. So to claim that you are... Um, Oh, while they aren't uncomfortable with the idea that God works on the Sabbath, to claim that you too can work on the Sabbath, that's awful uppity. So in effect, when the leaders come to Jesus and say, who do you think you are? Jesus responds, I am God. I am the son of God. I can do the work that he's doing. That's who I am. So they're not mad about the Sabbath thing anymore at this point. Uh, it's gone a lot further, and now they want to kill Jesus. Not only because he was doing away with the Sabbath, 
which by the way, he wasn't doing away with the Sabbath. It's a bit of a straw man argument. Um, but also because he called God his own father, therefore making himself equal with God. That's very fair. Uh, I would not respond well to someone who, uh, who comes into this church and claims divinity. Uh, <laughs> I would probably be nice to them. Uh, I would uh, listen to them, uh, but not believe them. Um, I would not give them authority in the church, probably. But Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he's not shy. He's not shy with his mother. Uh, he's not shy with John the Baptist. He's not shy with Nicodemus or with the Samaritan woman or her whole village. And he's not being shy now with those in authority. It's not his goal to make them angry. His goal is to open their eyes to who he is. So even as they're trying to kill him, and even as they accuse him of blasphemy, Jesus is still talking. Um, it's helpful to see this next section that we're going to read, uh, this monologue of Jesus's, this discourse, as a courtroom scene, if you will. Uh, we already have the accusation, the indictment, uh, and next we're going to see the plea or the opening argument uh, from Jesus and respond to this indictment. And then he's going to call some witnesses on his behalf. And then, like in all good courtroom scenes, there's a surprise ending. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to read through verses 19 through 30. Jesus responded to the Jewish leaders, I assure you that the son can't do anything by himself except what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. The father loves the son and shows him everything that he does. He will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. As the father raises the dead and gives life, so too does the son give life to whomever he wishes. The father doesn't judge anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so that everyone will honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever doesn't honor the son doesn't honor the father who sent him. I assure you that whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life and won't come under judgment, but has passed from death into life. I assure you that the time is coming and is here when the dead will hear the voice of God's son and those who hear it will live. Just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. He gives the Son authority to judge because he is the human one. Don't be surprised by this, because the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, and those who did good things will come out into the resurrection of life, and those who did wicked things into the resurrection of judgment. I can't do anything by myself. So what is Jesus' plea? his answer to the charge of claiming equality with God. Uh, guilty, he says. But there's something more he wants to say. There's obviously something that the Jewish leaders are missing about Jesus' divinity that he wants to open their eyes to. He doesn't just say yes. He offers further testimony regarding his plea. He wants to comment on the nature of his divinity because maybe it's not quite what the Jewish leaders expect it to be. Jesus never does quite what we expect him to do, and it isn't quite who we expect him to be. Jesus talks about his close relationship with his father. Uh, I remember when my brother was little, he would follow around my grandfather doing household chores, kind of copying and imitating him. So my grandfather would be mowing the lawn, and my little brother would be like following along in the, with the Fisher-Price lawnmower, right? Um, or my grandfather would be doing plumbing projects and my brother would be there doing some random plumbing thing with Fisher-Price toys. Uh, 
or siphoning wine, as good Italian grandfathers do. They get their six-year-old grandson to help them siphon the wine from the big jug into the small jugs. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I was often told I, I sounded and acted just like my dad. Uh, and I didn't take that as an insult, actually, when, <laughs> when I was in high school. I was proud of that. Jesus is claiming a relationship with his father that's very close and very intimate. Jesus is claiming equality and unity with God in the matters of love, in the matters of his works in the world, in the matters of life-giving and honor-receiving. He's claiming to be the agent of God, but more than the agent, the son of God, and more than the son, the one granted authority by God to be the judge in God's place. It's not without precedent. God has granted authority to kings and judges before. But what Jesus is claiming is more than royal authority. As we see on Palm Sunday, Jesus isn't just a king. He's more than royal. He's the son of God, completely unique in his relationship with God. Both are active in the world in giving life. And the father has given up judging the world so that the son can judge. And in fact, that's exactly why the Son is sent, in order to judge the world, not so that it would be condemned, but so that it will be saved, just as he told Nicodemus. Jesus as the Son was present in the beginning, as we saw in John 1. Indeed, we also know that Jesus will be there at the end, having the last word on judgment, just as he had the first word in creation. But because Jesus is present now to us, that creativity from the beginning and that life-giving nature of the word of God is present now to us. And because Jesus is present now, the judgment, the grace of God, the granting of eternal life is not only a promise for the future, but it's here now. It will be granted to whomever, whomever hears his word and believes. A time is coming and it has now come. Jesus is deeply beloved by God who is the life-giving power, the creative word of God. He's been granted all authority to judge. And all that's asked of us is to hear and to see. And that eternal grace, that eternal life is ours. And the thing is, Jesus does none of this apart from the Father. Because by, he says, by myself I can do nothing. This is the work of the Father and the Son together for the world. To the first hearers, all of this is utter blasphemy. To us, this is a confession about the mission of God. He's been giving bits and pieces of who he is to each of his listeners um, in ways that well could have offended his listeners. Why wasn't John the Baptist offended when Jesus began gaining more followers than him? When Jesus came as the light to John's lamp? Why wasn't Nicodemus offended when Jesus called him when, uh, when Jesus called himself the sent one, the son, it's the same thing he's saying here. But Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus after the temple cleansing. And Nicodemus could rightfully be angry or threatened by Jesus. But instead, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus saw something in Jesus' work that the other Jewish leaders were blind to. Why wasn't the Samaritan woman offended by what Jesus saw in her life and calling her out on it? And the answer for all these three is the same. They saw something. They saw something in Jesus' work that reminded them of the Father that they knew. 
they heard something in Jesus that reminded them of the life that, uh, of the eternal life that they had tasted glimpses of. And they believed Jesus. Why didn't the Jewish leaders believe? Why didn't they believe what Jesus had to say? And what do you think? What was preventing them from seeing Jesus the same way the woman at the well did? The same way that John the Baptist did? What do you think might be getting in the way of you seeing Jesus aright? Hearing Jesus right? What might be skewing your vision or muffling your ears? So that's Jesus' plea, his own testimony. But he humbly acknowledges that his witness about himself might not be enough for them. In fact, he says, if I testify, testify about myself, my testimony isn't true. This is Jesus we're talking about. He's already claimed to be son of the Father, meaning God, meaning equality with God, meaning he's united with God in purpose and will and being. But just as he submitted to the human limitations of incarnation, so too here he submits to the legal expectations. You need witnesses to stand for you, and you don't count as one of your witnesses. Uh, this was true in the Jewish world, in the Greek world, and it's still true. But Jesus says, there is someone else who testifies about me, and I know his testimony about me is true. Who is this mysterious someone else? Uh, maybe it'll help if I capitalize and italicize appropriately. Uh, there is someone else <laughs> who testifies about me. It's the Father. <laughs> he means the Father. You don't need to believe me. You don't need to take me at my word, Jesus says. Listen to the Father. Jesus here is really calling the Jewish leader's faith and understanding into question. He's already claimed intimacy. And the Jewish leaders are supposed to know what God's up to. If they knew the Father well, wouldn't they recognize the work of the Father in Jesus? So, and now he says, I call on the Father to witness for me. The very Father that they claim to be representing and whose law they claim to be upholding. So Jesus' first witness is a direct challenge to the faith of the Jewish leaders. He says, I don't accept human testimony. Otherwise, next I would call on John the Baptist, slash forerunner, uh, you celebrated his witness and work. You acknowledged his authority and the light of his ministry. So Jesus could call on John, someone that they appreciated, someone who could be a friendly go-between between these parties, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, I have a witness greater than John's testimony. The Father has given me works to do also, that I might complete them. These works I do testify about me, that the Father sent me. John's testimony is human, and Jesus does not call on it, but he points to the work that he has been doing such as the healing of this man. And he says, should this, this should be a sign to you that I am sent by the Father. Remember when Nicodemus visited Jesus, what did he say? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. It's the same point that Jesus is making. So do you think maybe like Nicodemus is standing in the back during this whole conversation? Do you think that Jesus looks at him when he says, these works I do testify about me that the Father sent me. Nicodemus, remember when you came to me? Remember what was happening in your heart? Remember the stirring that you felt? Are you still seeking that new life? Are you still seeking the Father? You know he sent me. You know that this is his work that I'm doing. Why are you persecuting me? So the first witness is the work of the Father 
that Jesus is sent to do. And the second witness is scripture. Jesus doesn't do any of the works that he, the fathers sent him to do uh, merely to demonstrate power. He's doing it to demonstrate the kind of relationship that he has with God and reveal the will of God for humanity and the world. Like uh, Watson said, these are signs, and signs point to something. It was also Watson who talked about this uh, in the miracle of turning water to wine. It wasn't just water that was being transformed that day. Jesus was transforming their shame into joy. It was also Watson who talked about this in the context of the temple cleansing. Again, Jesus wasn't just like uncontrollably angry uh, about money. It was the shame of economic oppression and the enforcement of societal boundaries and identities that he was angry about, specific things. So in both of these signs that are pointing to something, God's heart is revealed. But sometimes we miss the heart of the signs, the truth that they're pointing to, because we're blinded by the power and wonder and spectacle of it all. But Jesus is being specific. Jesus is also specific in his encounters with people. For both the woman at the well and Nicodemus, he is addressing their mistaken understanding of who God is and their relationship with God. So what's the misconception that Jesus is addressing with this healing that he performs on the Sabbath? And what's the misconception that he's addressing with all these claims that he's making right now? Uh, according to the Gospel of John, uh, we're at the second time Jesus is visiting Jerusalem. The first time is when he clears the temple and meets with Nicodemus. And this time, he's here for a festival. Uh, the festival? The festival. Uh, this time he's here for a festival. It's the first of a series of festivals that Jesus will attend. Okay, so you have to keep that in mind for September when we come back to the book of John. Remember, he's going to be attending a series of festivals. This festival is described super vaguely as a Jewish festival. <laughs> uh, really, in Jerusalem of all places. Uh, but some have theorized about what this festival could be. And they've theorized that the festival being celebrated is possibly the festival commemorating the giving of the Torah, the giving of law and scripture. This festival is the one where Jesus super pointedly disobeys Torah. Why? Why would he choose these specific days to do that? I think he says why next. You've never even heard the Father's voice or seen his form. And you don't have his word dwelling with you because you don't believe the one whom he sent. Examine the scriptures since you think that in them you have eternal life. They also testify about me, yet you don't want to come to me so that you can have life. That first part, you've never even heard his voice or seen his form. It's a quote of Deuteronomy 4.12. Deuteronomy 4 is the story of God speaking the covenant and the Ten Commandments to all the gathered people from the fiery mountain. Starting in verse 11, it says, You all came close and stood at the foot of the mountain. The mountain was blazing with fire up to the sky, with darkness, cloud, and thick smoke. The Lord spoke to you out of the very fire itself. You heard the sound of words, but you didn't see any form. So the very event that this festival is celebrating 
Jesus is referencing that event. The tradition states, we heard even though we couldn't see. That's the nature of our God. But Jesus says, you've never even heard his voice or seen his form. You don't recognize me because you've never seen or heard the Father. You don't know me because you don't know the Father. You don't know me because you don't know Torah, the heart of Torah. Here I am standing in front of you, talking to you, where you can see and hear me, and you don't see or hear me. That's the second witness, scripture. Now, I, uh, I teased a surprise ending that comes at the, uh, at the end. Uh, and get ready, we're at that point. Uh, the prosecution's getting antsy. They want to start calling their witnesses because they've got one lined up that's going to put Jesus in his place. And Jesus says, hold on, I have one more. And the, and the Jewish leaders are like, objection, there's no one on the list. And <laughs> uh, I don't know how courtrooms work. And, uh, <laughs> and Jesus is like, don't think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, the one in whom your hope rests. If you believed in Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. If you don't believe the writings of Moses, how will you believe my words? Jesus takes their star witness, the giver of the Torah, and flips all their expectations on their head. You thought you would find life and authority in the words and tradition of Moses, but it, too, was a sign pointing to me. It, like water, is a beautiful gift, but just as Jesus is the living water, so, too, is he the living word. The word that was there at the beginning, creating and giving life. The last word of grace at the end. Hearing and understanding these witnesses depends on a closeness with the Father. It depends on a familiarity. If you know the Father, you know his work and should recognize Jesus. If you know the Father, you should know the scriptures and recognize Jesus as their fulfillment. If you spend your life scouring scriptures and are blind to Jesus, then your hearts are closed and you've never really known the Father at all. Jesus came bearing all power and authority that was given to him by the Father, and Jesus is submitted to the Father's will. I think there's an important message there for us today, especially as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter. The Father and the Son are one. They are united in love and will and purpose. They're united in action. They do not act apart from each other. And so when we read about Jesus, we're seeing the Father's will and desire for the world coming to pass. When we see Jesus, we're seeing the Father's heart for the world. Good Friday and Easter, Jesus' death and his resurrection, it was the will of the Son and the Father for the whole world. We still often misunderstand Jesus. I still often misunderstand Jesus. There are grooves in my head that are well-worn and it takes a lot to shake out of them. There are some misconceptions that have worked their way into my assumptions about the relationship of Jesus and the Father over the years, and I want to address some of those. First, the Father did not send Jesus reluctantly. He's not half-heartedly agreeing to some cockamamie scheme that Jesus cooks up. He's not a helicopter parent. The Father did not send Jesus as a last resort. It was not a last-ditch effort. It's not plan B. It was planned from the beginning. All of Scripture testifies. Read it. Jesus isn't like Rudy in the, like a football team. Like, I guess we better try that. <laughs> Maybe we'll get a touchdown. And the Father did not send Jesus unwillingly. 
the Son wanted to come. And that means the Father wanted him to come because they're united in love. Their love for us and for each other knows no bounds. The Father believes we're worthy of Jesus, not that we're unworthy. What about you? What misconceptions are you still trying to shake out of? How are you seeking life in the things that are only meant as signs to eternal life? What validation are you seeking life in? What accomplishment? What identity? What relationship? What victory? What encounter with Jesus do you need to have where he's going to address something specific in your life and he's going to open your eyes? What is Jesus opening your eyes to this morning? What is Jesus challenging you in this morning? The invitation here as we prepare for Easter is to let go of our preoccupations with whatever mechanism by which we are seeking our salvation and to discover the overflowing, self-giving love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit throughout the entire uh, work of Scripture and in our lives and in our communities. Search these things for Jesus. He's there. Search for Jesus in Scripture. Search for Jesus in this community. Search for Jesus in your city. He's there. Search it for love. It's there. The invitation as we prepare for Easter is to see and to hear to open your ears, your eyes, and therefore your hearts to a new possibility that maybe Jesus isn't who you thought he would be, but he's even more miraculous. Maybe the Father's surprising you. Maybe you've made some assumptions about your relationship that the Father is inviting you to put aside so that you can hear what he's saying now. I've come for you. I've come to give you a new kind of life. And it's completely free. Just open your eyes to it. Jesus is waiting at the gates of the city on a donkey. I think we should think about letting him in.